Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Professor Stephen Ross. Professor Ross is the Dean's Professor of History at the University of Southern California and the Myron and Marion Kasdan Director of the Kasdan Institute for the Study of the Jewish Role in American Life. Professor Ross earned his BA from the University of Oxford, received a PhD from Princeton University. Professor Ross has authored a number of award-winning books, including Working Class Hollywood, Silent Film, and The Shaping of Class in America, which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award in History, as well as Hollywood Left and Right, How Movie Stars Shaped American Politics, which received a Pulitzer Prize nomination, and a Film Scholars Award from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And today, we will be discussing Professor Ross's absolutely fascinating page-turner, Hitler in Los Angeles, How Jews Foiled Nazi Plots Against Hollywood and America. And that book um, was a Pulitzer Prize for History finalist, and urge all our listeners and viewers, as I did, to go on to Amazon, click of a button, free delivery, and um, a book that you will thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy. Again, Professor Ross, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Ari. Okay. Uh, just to get started, a uh, little bit of background. 1933, Adolf Hitler is appointed Chancellor of Germany, the beginning of the 12-year Third Reich. What was the extent of Nazi activity in the USA in those early 1930s? Uh, it was actually growing in the late 1920s that uh, a number of Hitler's brown shirts left Germany uh, in the late 20s and came to cities like Chicago, where they started uh, Nazi groups. Uh, and those groups evolved by 1933 into what was called the Friends of New Germany. And at that point, they were scattered around the whole country with strongholds in New York, in uh, German Midwest, and out in California as well. Um, and in fact, in 19, March 1933, for example, Adolf Hitler sent Captain Robert Pape to Los Angeles with the instructions to start organizing uh, Nazi groups all along the Pacific coast and also to keep his eye out for potential sabotage and uh, the day that Nazis might attack the United States. So they were building networks throughout uh, America during the 1930s, and no one was paying attention. Uh, no one that is, no authorities were paying attention because American authorities, police, sheriffs, and especially the FBI were so focused on communism that they never saw fascists and Nazis as serious threats. Uh, you had mentioned the uh, Friends of National, the FNG. Who exactly were the FNG and who were the Silver Shirts? Uh, they were two distinct groups. The Friends of New Germany were German and German-Americans. The Silver Shirts were the American equivalents. That is, the day after Hitler became Reich Chancellor, of Germany, a, a screenwriter and short story writer, William Dudley Pelly, and major anti-Semite, 
said that if a painter can become the Reich Chancellor of Germany, I can start the silver shirts in America. And now uh, Germany will have its brown shirts. Italy will have its black shirts. Mexico has its gold shirts. And we Americans will have the silver shirts. And they were a fascist organization that was pro-Nazi, pro-Hitler, but also pro-American. Whereas the Friends of New Germany were largely uh, German emigres and their children who believed in Hitler and believed in Hitler was creating a great new Germany that would establish the Reich as the greatest nation in the world. Uh, again, background first. What was the Jewish community in Los Angeles like? When? 1930s? 1930s, yeah, 1930s. Well, that's a kind of hard uh, statement because which part of the Jewish community? The Jewish leadership, the most important Jewish leader in Los Angeles was uh, Rabbi Edgar Magnin, who was a believer that Jews uh, should not be seen, but quietly heard behind the scenes. Uh, you had a Jewish community that in the early part of the 20th century was very well integrated into the, I would say, social and economic elite. But by the 1920s, you began to see Jews being excluded from many of the institutions that they helped found. So they were excluded from country clubs, from dining clubs, from elite clubs, and had to start opening their own uh, facilities like Hillcrest um, Country Club, uh, where Jews could play tennis and golf because a few blocks away, the Los Angeles Country Club had basically prohibited all Jews from joining. Um, the protagonist, uh, maybe the hero of, of, of your book, Leon Lewis, who was he? And what was his L.A. spy ring again in the early years? So Leon Lewis was born in Wisconsin in the late 1880s to German Jews who had emigrated, left Germany, came to America, settled in the Midwest, uh, and he was raised in a Jewish home. He went to George Washington University for his BA, and then he went to University of Chicago Law School, and he graduated in 1913. And rather than take a job with a uh, traditional law firm, he believed in the concept of Tikkun Olam, heal the world. And so he took a job with a brand new organization that had just gotten started called the Anti-Defamation League. And he was its founding national executive secretary. And uh, that's 1913. By 1914, he was given a second position, which is the ADL's representative to the motion picture industry, which meant from 1959, he was in regular contact with studio heads and producers, making sure that no anti-Semitic images were coming out of Hollywood. He then enlisted in the Army when World War I broke out. He enlisted as a uh, private and wound up an officer. Uh, he stayed in Europe a little bit after the war, helping with the distribution of food and aid. And when he returned to Chicago, he returned telling his two bosses that things are getting worse in Germany, not better, and that uh, he could already see the roots of fascism spreading. And he said that we need to start an international division 
And I would say like any organization, any of your listeners or viewers who have been part of a group, if you come up with a great idea for a new committee, in all likelihood, you're going to be put in charge of that committee. And that's exactly what happened. So Leon Lewis now became the international executive secretary as well as the national, which meant there was probably no American following Hitler's rise to power more carefully than Leon Lewis. Well, around 1930-31, he moved from Chicago to L.A. for health reasons. He had been gassed during World War I, and he was advised he needed a better climate. And so he came to L.A., and he's watching. Uh, At this point, the ADL did not want to lose his services, so they made him the ADL representative to Southern California and asked him to continue being the ADL's representative to the motion picture industry. And so Lewis is watching what's going on in all of 1933. Hitler appointed Reich Chancellor in January. And um, before I started writing this book, I had been one of those historians who also asked the question, why didn't Jews do more to protest against Hitler and particularly his rise to power? And what I discovered during the course of my research is I was asking the wrong question. Jews did protest. The problem is, for those first uh, seven, eight months after Hitler took power, Jews had a very divided strategy as to how to confront Hitler. Uh, On one hand, you had the American Jewish Congress, led by Rabbi Stephen Wise, and they were very militant. They argued you have to get in Hitler's face, that Hitler is a bully, and the only way you can ever get a bully to back down is by confronting them. And they launched an international boycott of all German products in 1933 until Hitler stopped persecuting all minorities, not just Jews, but all minorities. Uh, On the other side of the spectrum was the American Jewish Committee led by Judge Proskauer of the law firm Proskauer Rose. And he said, if you get in Hitler's face, he's going to double down and make it worse for the Jews and that the best strategy was going behind closed doors, and particularly trying to work with religious leaders who could talk to Hitler. Well, Leon Lewis is watching all this from Los Angeles and is very frustrated that Jews can't unite around a single strategy. And that frustration uh, ramps up and turns to disgust and a need for action in late July 1933, when Nazis in L.A., you know, calling themselves the Friends of New Germany, hold their first open meeting uh, near downtown in uh, the Altheidelberg Inn. And uh, at that meeting, they announce that they are going to save America from its two greatest threats, Jews and communists, which as far as they were concerned were one and the same. And at the end of the meeting, Uh, A number of people, uh, many dozens, sign up to join the Friends of New Germany. And at the end of the meeting, also a photographer asks uh, five of the brown shirts who were there, dressed in their brown shirts with swastika armbands, if they would give the Hitler salute. Uh, They did, and the next morning, that picture of five brown shirts on the front page of the newspaper was seen by Angelinos and was read by Leon Lewis. And at that point, Leon Lewis said, is enough is enough. If no one else is going to do something, I will. And there is a case of citizen action. 
that is a man who sees America threatened, a man who's been following Hitler and understands this is no simple bully. This is a man who is determined to rid the world of the Jewish problem. And so since no one else is willing to do anything, he says, I'm going to take this on by myself. Because one of the things he reads in that article about the Friends of New Germany meeting, at the very end of the meeting, they announced that they're opening the basement of the Altheidelberg Inn, which is where they have their headquarters, to any World War I veteran, be it a German or an American, who no longer has a home or who needs food and clothing, we open our doors to you. You can stay here for as long as you like at no cost. The only thing you have to do is listen to the Minister of Propaganda, Hans Winterhalder, lecture you on the new Germany. Well, when Lewis read this, he said, oh, my God, this is what Hitler was doing in the 1920s, trying to attract disgruntled soldiers to his veterans organization. And the reason Lewis was concerned and thought this was a possibility that he saw the Nazis in L.A. were trying to build an army. Because come March 1st, when Franklin Roosevelt, March 1st, 1933, when Roosevelt assumes uh, the office of president of the United States, the very first bill he and Congress pass is the Economy Act of 1933. And the nation is bankrupt. And so in that Economy Act, there are vicious cuts being made. And one of those cuts is to military pensions. And up till then, uh, Army World War I veterans were receiving anywhere up to 80 to to $100 a month. After the Economy Act passed, the maximum amount was $20, and many received nothing at all. Well, this created a furor, and uh, disabled American veterans were protesting around the country, and Lewis saw this as something that the Nazis would use to lure in angry veterans because Southern California had more than 150,000 World War veterans, World War I veterans. It was the largest repository of veterans in the United States. And what Lewis also knew, if the Nazis wanted to start training an army, no American was going to be trained by a German officer. And no German was going to be trained by an American officer. And so Lewis said to himself, you know what? If they're going to try to raise an army and get leaders to train men, I'm going to provide them with those leaders. And he went uh, about a mile south of his office downtown to Patriotic Hall, which is where uh, all the veterans groups had their meeting space. And he he was a member of Disabled Americans as well as American veterans, as well as the American Legion. And he went in and he met with three, actually four DAV vets and uh, told them, <clears throat> I want you to go undercover with your wives and join every Nazi and fascist group in Los Angeles. If possible, rise to positions of leadership and send me memos on a daily basis what they're up to and what they're plotting. And what Lewis was hoping to find uh, court admissible evidence of Nazis plotting to overthrow the government or to create violence or havoc or instances of sabotage, espionage, whatever he could get that he could, in fact, turn over to the authorities and let them run the spy operation. Because Lewis said, I'm a lawyer. 
I'm not a spy master. The problem is he recruited four men, one German, one German-American, one American, and for a very brief period of time, the national commander of the disabled American veterans. And they, in fact, the first three joined uh, both the Friends of New Germany, which in 1936 became the Bund, the German-American Bund, as well as the Silver Shirts, and started sending Leon Lewis back information about plots to drive through the Jewish neighborhood of Boyle Heights and machine gun people to death, of plots to create phony fumigation companies. And when they were called in to fumigate a Jewish home, they would pump in cyanide. And murder plots as well, in in particular, one plot to seize the armories in San Francisco, L.A., and San Diego at the same moment. They would be seized by silver shirts, friends of New Germany, and Gestapo members coming off boats. Uh, And they would take over those armories, and they would offer the soldiers in the armories a choice of either joining us to save America from the Jewish communist threat, Everyone who said yes would be welcomed into the new Nazi American army. Everyone who said no would be murdered on the spot. This is all stuff that Leon Lewis's agents are finding. And in one case, they actually get one of the German plotters into a hotel room where Lewis has planted a dictaphone machine and he gets everything on tape. He then brings his evidence to the police chief, police chief Davis, who after two minutes stops him and says, you don't get it. Uh, Hitler's only doing what he needs to do to save Germany from the Jews. Uh, And that the real problem in L.A. are not the Nazis and fascists. They're all those commie Jews living in Boyle Heights, which was the Jewish neighborhood. And he throws them out of his office. And so Lewis then goes to the sheriff, Eugene Biscalouz, and he sees a photograph of Biscalouz, signed photograph from the Nazi council in L.A., George Gisling, who turns out to be his very good friend. Well, the sheriff isn't going to do anything, and he throws him out. And finally, Lewis goes to the FBI, and they are actually sympathetic, but they say there's nothing we can do. We can't put anyone under surveillance unless J.F.G. Hoover ordered us to do that. And Hoover had a limited number of agents at that time. The FBI was not that big, and he wanted all his agents tailing communists, not tailing Nazis and fascists. And so Leon Lewis, much to his regret, by November 1933, realizes he has to take over the spy operation on his own. And he does so, and he continues spying, running different spies from 1933 to the end of World War II. Uh, how does a person like Leon Lewis, who is an attorney, a lawyer, um, even though he was in the army, probably no experience in the spy business, what 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 was his makeup that that allowed him, that enabled him to to set up such a spy ring? And what, were other members of the Jewish community involved in this, or was this really like a, a solo action on his part? It was a solo action at the beginning. Uh, Others get in, I'll tell you in a minute, but I think um, this may sound corny, but I think Leon Lewis was called to do this. That here's a man who has devoted his life to Jewish causes, was really more a social worker than he was an attorney. Uh, And he really did believe in Tikkun Olam. He really spent his life trying to heal the world. 
And because, as I said, he was the international director of the ADO, he was really monitoring what was going on in Europe during the 20s. And he saw the rise of fascism. And he was under no illusion. You know, in the same way in America, people said in 2016, when Trump gets in office, he'll moderate the outrageous things he was saying. He didn't really mean all those things. He was just trying to mobilize a base. Well, Leon Lewis understood that Adolf Hitler meant everything he said. In the same way, many Americans understood that Donald Trump meant everything he said. And so for Lewis, it was somebody has to do something. The ADL wasn't doing it. The American Jewish Committee wasn't doing it. The American Jewish Congress wasn't doing it. And here was a threat in his city. And so he felt, I have to do something. And again, I think he was also driven by the idea he was not going to be a spy master. This was a temporary thing. He would just set it in place. And of course, authorities would be anxious to uh, take over an investigation of people who are plotting bad things. But in fact, that never happened. And so um, by November 1933, he's writing memos saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have lost every one of my customers, clients, because he's been spending all his time uh, running the spy operation. He's running three full-time spies plus their wives. And he says, I have two small children. I'm running out of money. I've either got to get funding or I've got to stop the operation. And what saves it is he goes to three of the most important Jewish leaders in Los Angeles, Irving Thalberg, known as the Boy Wonder, the number two person at MGM, but also the most successful Jewish fundraiser in Los Angeles. He goes to Rabbi Edgar Magnin, the most important rabbi on the West Coast, uh, whose temple, Wilshire Boulevard Temple, is the most important synagogue in Los Angeles. And finally, he goes to Mendel Silberberg, who is the most important entertainment, really invents entertainment law, and is the most important attorney in Los Angeles. He represents virtually all the Jewish studio heads. He represents uh, the uh, studios themselves. He represents most of the Jewish actors and actresses. And as someone I interviewed who was then a very young man, when he worked with Mendel, said, when Mendel never raised his voice, he spoke very softly. But when Mendel told you to do something, you didn't ask why, you simply did it. So Leon Lewis talks to Silberberg, who says, don't worry, I've got this covered. Show up at Hillcrest Country Club, March, certain night, March 1934. I think it was March 13th. Silberberg then personally calls 40 of the most powerful men in Hollywood the studio heads, plus the most important producers, all men, tells them show up at Hillcrest, which is the Jewish country club, on a certain night. And that night they all show up, and it was like a red carpet event without the red carpet. They're escorted into a private dining room. And remember, Leon Lewis has been working with these men since 1915. He knows them. He knows that these are hard scrabble men who are not going to give him money just because he's a Jew. And so he decides he's going to frighten them into generosity. And what he does, uh, he begins to tell them, you know, you guys all pay attention to your above-the-line personnel. That is, the people whose names appear at the beginning of the movie, the writers, the directors, the stars, the editors. 
the producers, but you are paying no attention to your below-the-line personnel, the studio blue-collar workers who make the sets, who make, who run the electricity, who do the sound. Those are 80% of your employees. And what my spies have discovered is your foremen are firing, systematically firing every Jew in the studios. Louis B. Mayer, you got two Jews left in MGM lot. Harry Cohn, they're all gone. Paramount, you got none left. And he goes around the room and he says, but this isn't the least of your concerns because my spies have always have also found hit lists and your names are on those lists. At the end of the evening, Leon Lewis walked out with pledges uh, in $2020 of $400,000 and a promise to keep that funding going as long as he needed it. And with that funding, it enabled Lewis to earn, basically earn a living, support his family, and run. Uh, his spies were all paid expenses. None of them were paid really a uh, salary. They were just given expenses to do it. And he was then able to run that operation with the funding from the Hollywood moguls uh, until 1945. And what to me is truly the most amazing thing is this may have been the first time in several thousand years that Jews kept the secret. Because in uh, all the years, I've spent 20 years working on Hollywood history, I've never found a single memoir of anybody talking about that meeting or the secret spy operation that they were funding. Everyone kept those secrets to the grave, including Leon Lewis's children, uh, the spies' children, Chuck Slocum, one of the key spies, uh, and Leon Lewis's assistant, Joe Roos. I interviewed his son. They knew nothing about the activities of their parents. It was kept a secret to their grave. Yeah. Um, you, you had mentioned this name before, uh, George uh, Disling. Uh, who, who was he? What role did he play? And how active were Nazi officials in Germany vis-a-vis um, -vis what was happening in Los Angeles. All right, let's start with the latter part. Yeah. Both Adolf Hitler and his Reichsminister of Enlightenment and Propaganda, uh, Joseph Goebbelings, both agreed that, first of all, both loved the movies, and both agreed that part of the success that the Allies had in World War I was their ability to put out enormous propaganda against Germany, both coming out of British studios and American studios. And they believed that that propaganda, those anti-German movies, were enough to help sway people who were on the line, should we support Germany, not, yes, no, that those turned the tide against the German nation. And they were determined to stop Hollywood from making any anti-Nazi, anti-German, anti-Hitler films. And so they sent their vice counsel, George Gisling, who had been in New York, they sent him to L.A. with one mission and one mission only, which is forget about everything that a counsel does. You can do those things on the side. We don't care. What we want you to do is stop Hollywood from producing any film that mocks, denigrates, attacks, the German government, the German people, and particularly Adolf Hitler. And they empowered him with the, the German Economy Act of uh, 1931 that said any, uh, any studio in the world 
that puts out a film that is an anti-German film, and by that, again, attacking, mocking, in some way denigrating Germany and its leaders, would have all its films banned in Germany. And if a nation put out enough of those kind of films or allowed those films to be made, the entire export would be banned from Germany. Well, Germany then was the number two market after England, and it was a very important market for the Americans. And so when Gisling came over, uh, he basically came to L.A. and he told the studios, there's a new marching order here, and I need to see your films. Uh, And if you don't show me your films, those films will be banned from Germany. And what people need to understand is Hollywood is first and foremost in the money-making business, not the consciousness-raising business. And if producers and directors could make films that raised consciousness while making profits, great. But the bottom line was the bottom line. And so every studio except for the Warner Brothers, who told them to go take a hike, and they shut down their offices in Berlin and moved elsewhere in Germany, every other studio agreed to let Gisling see its films. He, in fact, saw many of those films, ordered certain cuts, certain censor cuts, which they all agreed to make. And then his job got a lot easier in July 1934 when Hollywood, which was being, uh, which was under attack for producing films that many people thought were filled with too much violence, too much sex, too much immorality, they passed what was called the Production Code Administration. And the Production Code Administration passed a new self-censorship code And they had uh, Section 10, which mirrored the same thing Germany had in their Economy Act, saying, if you want to get a production code seal, then you cannot make a movie that attacks, mocks, or in any way denigrates a foreign nation or its leaders. And those seals were essential because you needed a seal to get into a first-run movie theater, and studios made 80% of their profits in the first-run movie theater. So from 1934 until he left the country when Roosevelt expelled all German diplomats in June 1941, Gisling would be locked away in studio rooms, watching these movies, ordering cuts, and the studios had to agree with those cuts or else they would lose the German market. You you clearly document uh, in, in, in the book that there were serious threats in the West Coast from Nazis, Nazi supporters, fascists. At what point did law enforcement agencies locally and perhaps the FBI nationally take any of these threats seriously? Oh, uh, how about 1941, the fall of 41? Uh For any of your listeners who have not seen or listened to, rather, the Rachel Maddow series, Ultra, Rachel Maddow Presents Ultra, uh, she does a great job of showing how it really is until there is sabotage on the East Coast in the fall of 1941, uh, where three munitions plants are blown up. uh, And one of them, the Hercules Powder Plant, had been blown up, and two years earlier, in uh, 1939, one of Leon Lewis's agents exposed himself by testifying 
before HUAC and saying, you know, I had been undercover, I had been part of this Nazi group, and we were planning to blow up the Hercules powder plant. The only difference is they were planning to blow it up on the West Coast, where there was one, and this one blew up on the East Coast. And even after the powder plants blew up, J. Edgar Hoover kept saying, no, 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 this is just an accident, it's not sabotage. And it wasn't until Leon Lewis and Joe Roos, his assistant, sent uh, Walter Winchow, as well as uh, Drew Pearson and other journalists, all this information, all their spy reports about the sabotage that was actually going on, about Neil Ness and his testimony, that they published articles that embarrassed Hoover so much, saying, here are all these Nazis. There are 1,800 Nazis working inside aircraft factories in America, in Los Angeles, rather. And the, the FBI is doing nothing about that. Nothing. Uh, and it embarrassed Hoover so much that he finally ordered his agents to start investigating. But by the time he ordered his agents, he finally, the um, FBI in L.A. had written Hoover in 1940 saying, look, we should put Hermann Schwinn, the head of the German-American Bund, under surveillance. He's the head of L.A. Bund, and he's the number two Nazi in America. He's the Gauleiter for the entire western region of the uh, Bund, meaning all the west coast through um, Hawaii. He is a dangerous man. We've gotten all these warnings about plots, etc., etc. And Hoover writes back saying, Hermann Schwinn, has broken no laws, and therefore he cannot be put under surveillance. What the letter never said is that a number of movie stars who were on the left, who had never breaking, broken a law, had been put under surveillance since 1918 by Hoover, starting with uh, Charlie Chaplin. And throughout the 30s, he had movie stars under surveillance who broke no laws. But again, Hoover was obsessed with communists, he was also an anti-Semite and thought, you know, fascists and Nazis are no threat to America. They're white. They're Christian. They're not a threat. And he was forced into action. When I um, wrote away for the Freedom of Information Act file for Hermann Schwinn, again, the chief Nazi in L.A., number two Nazi in America, I eventually got his file, and the FBI file began in January 1942 after Pearl Harbor, not before. You, you mentioned uh, Charlie Chaplin, one of the first great Hollywood stars. And, and we kind of associate Hollywood stars today with um, raising their voices on all kinds of political issues, civil rights, liberties, whatever it might be. Um, were they like that in, in the 30s or were they put into check by, by the studios who were, again, concerned about market share in, in Germany and Europe? Well, I'd say both. That uh, First of all, when does Hollywood become political? And the answer is, the uh, surprising answer is, it was the Republicans who established the first speechhead in Hollywood, not the Democrats. It was conservatives, not liberals. Louis B. Mayer in 1928 turned MGM into a publicity wing for the GOP. And it wasn't until the 1932 presidential election that Hollywood as a whole became political, that you had movie stars who had never spoken out before on politics, uh, particularly came out for FDR, 
And it was the first time the Democrats came out in large numbers. And within a few years, you had the Hollywood Democratic Committee and the Hollywood Republican Committee. Uh, and after the election, things went a little quiet. But by 1936, movie stars, both on the left center and conservatives to the right, Republicans, all joined the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. That that becomes, I would argue, the first issue-oriented Hollywood intervention. You know, in the same way we're what I call issue-oriented politics, movie stars, movie stars can't engage in constant political activism because they're often on sets making movies. But in between that, they can speak out on issues that matter to them. And the first big issue that really confronted the movie industry stars was fascism and Nazism. And that's why in 36, they formed the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. They had parades in which movie stars uh, marched at the front with banners. And uh, whenever they marched, they put the most prominent movie stars at the front. And because photographers would take their picture and they would be on the front page of every newspaper in the world the next day. Uh, so that was one thing that they spoke out for. But in many ways, it helped raise consciousness, but it didn't do a lot in terms of policy. Leon Lewis accomplished much more than all these organized anti-Nazi leagues did. What would you say was Leon Lewis's greatest accomplishments in, in all of these endeavors that really spanned the entire war? 33 till 45, Hitler till the end of the war. Well, you know, um, one of the responses I've had to the book and when I've given talks sometimes is people say, well, were these Nazis really a threat? Weren't they more Keystone cops than anything else? And my answer is, do you really want to take a chance? That one of the remarkable things is there were no episodes of sabotage on the West Coast before or during the war. And largely, that is credited to Leon Lewis and his spies. He uncovered, his spies uncovered several murder plots. They uncovered a number of plots. The first one they uncovered, I mentioned before, the uh, Silver Shirt plot by Dieter Gefkin, who was working with Silver Shirts and Nazis to take over the armories and New, in uh, L.A., San Francisco, and San Diego. Well, Leon Lewis, the only one who would listen to him in 1934, was the head of naval intelligence on the West Coast, uh, Zacharias. I forget his uh, first name now. But Zacharias listened to Lewis in part because he was a Jew. He was one of the rare Jewish graduates at that time of Annapolis and was a high-ranking officer and when Lewis notified him that silver shirts uh, were buying weapons in San Diego from two corrupt Marines, no one else listened. But Zacharias did. He ordered an investigation and discovered everything Lewis said was true, that they were buying arms. They were plotting to overthrow the uh, National Guard armories and take them over. And those men were, in fact, brought to trial and convicted. So Lewis... It isn't anyone. His greatest achievement was simply running a spy ring until the end of the war, because he believed that even after Pearl Harbor, he thought anti-Semitism was going to go up, not down. And he was right. And he was afraid that officials would not protect Jews during the war. 
and he was right about that as well. What was the connection, if there was one at all, between the isolationist American, America First movement and American Nazi activity? Right. You had, you had two groups in the America First movement. The America First movement was essentially arguing as a whole, war has never solved any problems. Uh, World War I left everyone in worse shape than before and that we should stay out of foreign wars. Europe is always at war. If you take a look at the history of Europe, there's always wars between nations. France, England, Spain, uh, parts of the German Empire have always been at war with one another. It does us no good. Well, uh, that was being articulated by two different groups. On one side, those I would call the genuine peace advocates, anti-war people, uh, included people like uh, the young John Kennedy, the young Gerald Ford, both joined uh, the America First movement, neither of whom you could accuse of having fascist or Nazi sympathies. They just simply thought war is not the answer. But on the other side, there were many pro-Nazis who wanted to keep America neutral as long as possible. They knew Hitler was going to start a war. They didn't, and they knew that American intervention could prevent Hitler from achieving a rapid victory. And so they were trying to keep America neutral to the day Hitler was ready to start his war. And at one point, once he conquered Europe, they fully expect he would turn his vision and conquer the United States. So keep America neutral as long as possible. And he had agents like Sylvester Verrick, who was his chief propaganda agent in America, working with American firsters, working with congressmen and senators to keep neutrality going as long as possible. As you, as you put the book put together, did all your research, what lessons do you draw from the activities of a, uh, a Leon Lewis actively being involved in, in trying to stem Nazi activity and the role that the Jewish community should play in American politics and in fighting anti-Semitism. Well, that's a comp- you know, just there's an easy answer and it's a complicated answer because the easy answer is a dangerous answer, which is Leon Lewis stood up when no government officials would stand up. And you know, when you go back, uh, I used to be a political theory major, and uh, in terms of state theory, when you talk about Locke. Hobbes, Rousseau, all these people who talk about the founding of civilization. Uh, There's one line of agreement. Now, mind you, it's philosophy, it's not law, which is when a government, the whole point of a government is to protect the lives of its citizens. When a government no longer is able to protect the lives of its citizens, that government becomes illegitimate. And it becomes the right of every citizen to mobilize for self-protection. And this is what Leon Lewis saw happening, that no one in government, he went to the police, he went to the sheriff, he was not trying to become a vigilante. He was not trying to seize power on his own to run some extra legal operation. He was not the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers. He was trying to work within the law. But when every single law enforcement agency basically told him to piss off, we don't care what happens to the Jews. 
Leon Lewis said, uh-uh, not on my watch. And the interesting lesson, we want to talk about lessons. It's, mm-hmm. it's about something well beyond the Jewish community, because with one exception, every one of his spies was a Christian. And every one of his spies knew Leon Lewis was a Jew. There was no question. And they knew the Jews were funding this, but they never felt they were working for the Jews. They were working for America because they all believed that when one group of Americans calls for death to another group of Americans, it's up to every citizen to protect their fellow citizens, regardless of their race, their religion, or their ethnicity. And that, to me, is the real heroism. All these undercover operatives were risking their lives to stop Nazis from killing fellow Americans. And they weren't saying Nazis killing fellow killing Jews. They were killing fellow Americans. And that's not what we do in our country. And so if there's a lesson, it's somehow every one of us needs to do something. And... Um, Moses Maimonides, in one of his commentaries, says, I don't ask you to be like Moses. I ask you to be like the best of yourself. And the way I um, understand that is you don't have to be as heroic as Moses to lead a people out of the desert for 40 years. But what can you do? And to me, the answer is, at the very least, when an election comes, bring one friend with you who wasn't planning to go to the election. At the very least, help turn out a vote to get hate mongers out of office. Um, the other thing, if you hear somebody giving hate speech, say something. That's a little harder to do. But if you hear it, say something. We don't talk that way in this country. That's not okay to talk like that. Now, mind you, if you're dealing with a crazy person, you do put yourself at risk. But it is something, and I would argue, if you do it in a venue where there are other people, you will not be isolated. Other people will stand up with you. In other words, anything you can do to fight back against hate, however small, is a move forward. What's next in, in your work and your projects? Any project that you're undertaking now? Is it? Oh yeah, I'm about three quarters. Related? Yeah, I'm three quarters away through a follow-up book okay. because my Hitler in L.A. ends in 1945. But I knew Nazism and fascism in America did not end in 1945. And so I'm writing a follow-up book called The Secret War Against Hate, American Resistance to White Supremacy After 1945. And it's two simultaneous stories. I tell the story of four of the main godfathers of white supremacy, uh, starting in 1945. The book, in a sense, asks us, how did we get from the end of World War II to January 6, 2021? How do we get from the good war in the greatest generation to the storming of the Capitol? And my argument is, we've all been misled by Tom Brokaw and this idea of the greatest generation in the good war. And that was true for probably the majority of troops who came back. Came back not believing in Kumbaya America, but I think they had a sense of salad bowl, that they had fought with people they never would have interacted with in their lives. The Jew, the Christian, the Catholic, the boy from New York, the Jew boy from New York, the Mississippi kid, the California kid, kid from Wisconsin. And they come back, I think, with a sense of appreciation of differences. And yet they all had each other's back. 
They were brothers in combat. And it isn't like they came back saying, I want you to marry my sister. But it's like, well, you know what? You deserve to lead a life free of harm and to lead a life wherever life takes you on your own abilities. That was only half. The story we never tell, and this is the story I've uncovered, is half the people who come back, come back angry. Why? They didn't go to war to fight Hitler and Mussolini, to fight fascism and Nazism, to fight for democracy. They went to war simply because Japan bombed us. And when someone bombs you, you fight back. And they went to war as patriots, protecting their country. And these are people mainly in the, in the old Confederacy, across the Southwest and parts of the Great Plains. And they come back and they argue our world's been changed. That while we are gone in these four years, Congress has passed all these laws making it easier for blacks and Jews to compete with us for jobs and housing. And that before the war, we had no problem with blacks and Jews because they knew their place. And as long as they knew their place, everything was wonderful. But now they don't know their place anymore because Congress has passed all these laws that make them think there are equals. And those people start creating a series of white supremacist hate groups bent on violence, murder, and destruction. And I follow four of those people. The one name that your uh, listeners probably would have heard of is George Lincoln Rockwell. Uh, and the others are uh, um, Emery Burke, Jesse B. Stoner, James Madoff, and Rockwell. And what makes these men so interesting is they work together for decades. These are movement activists. They're not just looking to influence an election. They want to change the whole country. And so the story is how the four of them work together and then fall apart because their egos, everyone wants to be the head white supremacist, the head Nazi in America. But the other story I tell is how three groups spy on them from 1945 to the late 70s. The Anti-Defamation League, the American Jewish Committee, and the Non-Sectarian Anti-Nazi League are all running undercover operation, likely on Lewis did, keeping track. And in the case of the Anti-Nazi League, putting uh, agent provocateurs inside some of these groups to, who rise to positions of power and then foil them. It's and a great story. When, when is this coming out? When is it expected to come uh, out? After I finish writing it. Okay, okay. I, I would say probably a year and a half. Okay, well, we'll look forward to, to, to seeing it. And again, uh, uh, Hitler in Los Angeles, how Jews foiled Nazi plots against Hollywood and America and urge all our listeners and viewers to simply go online and uh, purchase the book. You'll find it uh, educational, informative, and, and simply fascinating. Uh, Professor Ross, again, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Ari. I appreciate you being on the show.